All right, well, thank you, little ones, for uh, helping us start thinking about this text. If you are just joining us, I encourage you, uh, if you haven't opened up your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 3. We're actually going to go through all of chapter 3 today. Uh, I encourage you to have it open. It's going to be on your screens as well, but I think it's just there's something to having it open in front of you so you can wrestle through that and see these words for yourself. If you're just joining us, we're going through the book of Matthew, and the first couple of chapters are just crammed full of drama. Uh, as, as the scene is set for Jesus to take center stage, and Alden did a fantastic job last week covering chapter 2, and just showing us uh, Matthew's very strong emphasis on how uh, God's powerful sovereignty is at work. So in other words, nothing can thwart God's plans. It's kind of like that old hymn in Christ alone, which says, no power of hell, no scheme of man. So nothing in heaven, hell, or earth can cause God to pump the brakes on what he's doing, can cause God to swerve away from his very purposeful intentions. And so we see this being the case as the gospel opens. You, re- you read the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, and you see this tumultuous history of Israel that's seen through the generations of people leading up to Jesus. And then we see it again in the details leading up to Jesus' birth. This is a theme that's going to continue throughout the rest of Jesus' life and ministry. But after three weeks and two chapters, we finally get to see Jesus himself here in chapter 3. And about 30 years have passed between those two chapters, but Matthew jumps right into it. And this morning, here's what we'll see in the text. That God's people have an awareness of their sin, they respond to that by repenting, and then they walk in obedience. That's what we see in chapter 3. Before we jump into the text, let's pray one more time for our time in in the Word. Father, we just thank you for your word. Help us now to have, again, eyes to see, ears to hear, and especially hearts to be able to receive your word this morning. Help us to understand this, God. Lord, we need you to do this, and we pray that you would help us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and, leather, and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." So here's what's happening. You've got this wild man named John who's preaching and baptizing people out in the middle of the woods. And we'll talk about what he's preaching and what exactly baptism is, but what you need to know is that this is not a normal occurrence by any means. What's happening is culturally strange and it is religiously peculiar, but... At the same time, it's biblically consistent. So let me say that again. The appearance of John and the specifics of his ministry were culturally strange, religiously peculiar, but biblically consistent. Let me show you what I mean. This is not a case where having an understanding of the cultural context of that time uh, would help us see that this is actually quite normal. No, this is just as out of place as it would be if there was a person today who lived off of foraged food in the woods who came preaching and baptizing people out in the woods near Puffer's Pond. 
It was strange then. What's even stranger is that people were flocking to him. You see that in verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. There's something big happening here, and it's culturally strange, but it's also very religiously peculiar. Let me tell you what I mean. What, what John was doing was not in association with the local synagogue. So he's, he's not like a speaker that the Jewish leaders would have invited in to give like a rousing testimony for their congregants. This is not a revival meeting. This is not orchestrated or planned in any human way. And we know this, and we'll see this in a minute, when the religious leaders uh, arrive, and it'll be very clear that they had no part in planning this at all. But before that even happens, there are two things that make this very religiously peculiar. Number one is just John's appearance in general, his aesthetic vibe or his lifestyle. Now, this is one point that, that wouldn't have been incredibly culturally strange. It would have been a little weird, but not like crazy. John's look and the way that he carried himself, even what he ate, would have been interpreted as like, wow, this guy's like really humble and, and simple in the way that he's existing. It, it would be as if someone today was maybe like wearing jeans and, and a t-shirt all the time, and they just ate rice and beans all the time. Now, this isn't a perfect comparison. It still is a little bit strange and weird, but you kind of get the gist. It showed that John was a simple, living, modest person. He's wearing the basic necessities to cover his body. Now, again, this wasn't incredibly culturally changed, but it was religiously peculiar because anyone who had any level of power or prestige who was worth listening to, especially those in the Jewish culture, would have dressed and eaten very well. So there was a strong connection, a very religious connection for the people of Israel between spiritual blessing and material wealth. It would have been the religious leaders who dressed the best and who ate the best. And there would have been an expectation for anyone who's coming to do very mighty spiritual things to also have material prosperity to match that. But that's not John, he's not wearing expensive silk. He doesn't have really rare purple garments on him. He's not eating choice meats and veggies. Verse 4, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. John did not fit the picture of someone with spiritual significance. And that's one of the reasons why this is religiously peculiar. The second reason why this was religiously peculiar is the whole baptism thing. So here's what you need to know about baptism leading into chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel. Baptism did exist in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant with God. But the context of that baptism in the Old Testament was a ceremonial washing of Gentiles. These are non-Jews, people outside of the community of God, as part of their process of conversion to the God of the Bible. So it was a bathing ritual to ceremonially clean out outsiders so that they could be a part of the covenant community of God's people. So here's John with no appearance of religious significance or authority performing a cleansing ritual for outsiders on those who were already Jewish. And then to top it all off, the ceremonial, uh, the ceremonial baptism of the Old Testament was something that would have been self-administered. So like normal baths that you take, you had to cleanse yourself. 
It would have been unthinkable to have someone like a priest come out to wash you. Like the whole purpose of a washing is so that you would be able to be ceremonially clean enough in order to come into the presence of God and the priest and the people of God. But here's John getting into the dirty water of these people and essentially bathing them spiritually. What's happening here isn't just religiously peculiar. In some ways, it's religiously offensive. It's about to get more offensive in just a minute. Yet, what we see here is that all of this, even though it's strange, even though it stands out, even though it's a little offensive, it's actually biblically consistent. Biblically consistent. Why? I'm going to give you two reasons that I think we see in this text. Number one, God said it was going to happen. And number two, it is in the spirit and the message of the Old Testament. All right? So first, God said it was going to happen. The fact that nothing can thwart God's plan, which is what we talked about last week, it implies that God, in fact, does have a plan. And the plan is communicated throughout all of Scripture. It might be slightly obscured at times or might not make sense intuitively right away to the original hearers, but as the life and ministry of Jesus Christ unfolds, nothing should be a surprise to those who have been following along if... They've been understanding the spirit and the message of all of God's word. In the way that we know that John can be culturally strange and religiously peculiar um, and, and that that was not random is because Jesus tells us that this was going to happen. So you see this right at the beginning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now what Matthew is pointing out is that John's culturally strange and religiously peculiar ministry was clearly foretold by God in the book of Isaiah. It's actually an incredible word from God in Isaiah who's speaking to Israel to comfort them in their exile. And, and here's the whole passage for context. So this should be up on your screens. This is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The unevil ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In ancient times, if a king was about to visit a city, then a highway would have been created for him. They would have literally made a straight and level road for the king to travel on. They would clear brush. They would cut down trees. And, and, and this would have been all hands on deck for all the people of that city. They didn't have big earth movers or bobcats. All the people would be out there doing the work of preparing the way for the visiting king to the city. So what God is saying here to a tired and weary Israel is that, hey, there's going to come a time when you will need to create a highway because I am coming for you. And there's, there's going to come a time when you will need to prepare a way for me and to get that ready because salvation will arrive. Now, how will God's people know when this is going to happen? A voice will cry out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
That's John's voice. That's the connection here. He's the one crying out in the wilderness, which means, as Matthew is helping us connect some of those dots for us, that the king is finally coming. The promised king is on his way. This is all going according to plan. It is biblically consistent, despite being pretty strange and peculiar in some ways. Now, the question we need to ask is, what does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord? John is preaching and baptizing. He's not mobilizing people to make a road in the desert. Did John maybe like misread some of the instructions that God gave him? No. Let's look a little bit closer at what John is crying out in the wilderness, and that's going to help us understand what he's doing. Verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then jump down to verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John's message is not get your shovels and your work boots on and come help me build this highway. John's message is repent. Repent. This is a word with a lot of cultural and religious weight, maybe perhaps even some baggage for some of us in this room. But what it means simply is to turn, to turn. When used as an imperative, it means turn back. In whatever direction that you are going, you need to stop. You need to turn 180 degrees and head in that opposite direction. The Jewish people would have understood this word and John's message because it is biblically consistent with the spirit and the message of all of the Old Testament. In fact, this was essentially the message of every single prophet that ever came to God's people in the Old Testament. Ezekiel said something very similar. This is in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 6. It says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. So God's exhortation to his people throughout time has been to repent, to turn away from sin, to turn away what leads to death. But it wasn't just a command to turn away from their sin. True repentance is doing a 180 away from sin, but actually toward God. Do you see Isaiah communicating this? Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me. This is God speaking. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 12, go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return. It's a similar word there, repent, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord, and I will not be angry forever. So John's purpose is not to facilitate the preparation of a physical road for God. John is facilitating a preparation of hearts for the Lord. In order to receive Jesus and the message that he brings and the work that he will accomplish, God's people would have had to level and straighten their hearts. They would have had to acknowledge the the crookedness of their ways, the twisted paths of their hearts. You see this in the way that they are confessing their sins in verse 6. They're acknowledging that sin. But they're not just feeling sorry for themselves. 
They're not merely acknowledging how messed up they are, but they are turning their hearts to the Lord. They're not just repenting away from sin, but more accurately, they're repenting to God. This is what Christian repentance is, Mercy House. In order to be able to receive from God, God's people must first acknowledge their sin. Have you ever hurt someone's feelings before? Let's just show of hands. You ever hurt someone's feelings? Maybe you said something you wish you didn't or did something that you wish you didn't. And then think, think back on this. You went your separate ways from that person and then you come back to them and you haven't quite acknowledged what happened and there's just like that, there's almost a palpable tension between you and that person. Have you ever felt that before? You know what I'm talking about? Where you haven't said like, hey, I'm sorry, or hey, that thing I said, or that thing I did, there is just a wall between you and that person. It's almost as if you can't carry on that relationship, at least not in a meaningfully fruitful, wholesome way, until that brokenness, that sin, whatever you did, is acknowledged. Our relationship with God gets fractured because of sin. We are the offender. He is the offended. And some of us today might feel that awkward tension with God. Like when we're spending time with a friend that we've hurt and we haven't acknowledged that and what we've done. Some of us might feel stunted in our relationship with God, maybe even stagnant, maybe feeling like I'm just not growing in my faith. And if we feel this way, one of the questions that we ought to ask is have we acknowledged all of our sin to God? Have we been honest with God? Have we confessed our waywardness to God? Or do we avoid it? Do we diminish it? Do we hope that it goes away? It's not something that God really cares about. Maybe worse, do we get comfortable in it? Frederick Beekner, he's a Presbyterian commentator and author, writes this. He says, to confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything God doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, there are, they are the abyss between you and him. When you confess them, they become the bridge. Mercy House, my exhortation to you is to confess your sins. Confess your sins so that your relationship with God, whether you're a Christian or you are not, can begin to be restored. Sin separates. It deteriorates. If we're a Christian, it doesn't mean that our relationship with the Father is severed any more than when my children sin against me. They never, there's nothing they can do to stop being my daughters. Amen? So that is true in our relationship with God. But when my daughter sin against me, there's a fracture in that relationship. It definitely does affect the way that we are relating to one another. It's the same with God. When there is unconfessed sin and things that are standing between us, it affects our relationship with God. It, it can hinder it. There is a, a sense of an abyss between us and God. But hear the loving father. This is another prophet, Joel chapter 2. And you hear the repent language and the, and, and the acknowledgement of sin language. It says in verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. The phrase there is people would rip their clothes off to show that they're so heartbroken over their sin. God's saying, it doesn't matter. I don't care what you do with your clothes. I care about what you're doing with your heart. Rend your hearts, not your garments. 
Continuing on, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Maybe you've never done this before. So let's take a minute and we'll do this together. I'm going to lead us in a very short prayer and just give us a chance to acknowledge and confess our sin to God. Remember, you're not telling him anything that he doesn't already know or hasn't seen. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, you are God. You are perfect. You are good. You know and you see everything. You are gracious and merciful. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God, we know and acknowledge that we are not perfect. And so, Lord, we take this moment now to acknowledge the ways in which we fall short, Father. Father, your word in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you for this great promise. We lean into this now. Help the honest confession of our hearts be a highway for you and your grace in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God's people acknowledge their sin through confession. They turn away from, God, uh, from, from their sin to God through repentance, but not all of Israel is doing this. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is at hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, make their trek out into the woods to see what is happening, but they don't get a very warm welcome from John. John calls them out. He calls them a brood of vipers. The offensiveness of this phrase is lost on us. So a brood is is a family or offspring of something. Uh, Vipers are snakes. And if you remember reading through the Old Testament, Satan is represented as a snake when he deceives Adam and Eve in Genesis. So John is basically looking at these powerful Jewish leaders, these religious elite, the most holy of God's people, and he greets them with, you sons of Satan. 
Who warned you about the wrath to come? Now, there's some sharp words of judgment. It's pretty consistent with intoned to the Old Testament prophetic predecessors of John. So John is biblically consistent here. It's honestly gentle compared to how Jesus will address them later on in Matthew 23 when he will straight up call them sons of Satan. It's because these religious leaders of God's people have lost their way. We're going to see in a lot more detail, what that looks like throughout the book of Matthew, but they were worse off than the people who were confessing and repenting because in their self-righteousness, they were blind to their own sin. They thought that they could earn their way into God's good graces by looking holy and being religious. And they also believed that they would have a right to be saved by God because of their family heritage. But look again what John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is verse 8. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. God's people are not God's people merely because they look holy. That's why John says bear fruit in keeping with repentance. God's people don't just acknowledge sin. They turn away from it and they walk toward God. And in that process, God transforms his people. It is not an empty, trite, religious ritual. It is a powerful expression of faith that God uses to supernaturally transform people into his image. So John's saying... You're not being transformed. What you're doing is essentially lip service. Your religion is fruitless. It is empty. It is worthless. John's words, I think, ought to be convicting for us today. First, if we don't acknowledge our sin at all, or if we say that we are not the glory of God. We are all sinful. There's nobody in this room that would be able to say, I I have not fallen short. I am perfect. And I don't think anybody in this room would say that. But I think what's more common are people saying, well, my sin isn't that bad. Or, well, I'm not doing, at least I'm not doing X, Y, and Z, which is what that person over there is doing. God is not comparing us to one another. He compares us to his holy and perfect son, Jesus Christ. Second, it should be convicting because if we find ourselves acknowledging our sin but not repenting, then this should be a convicting word into our hearts. If we acknowledge our sin, but instead of doing a 180 and walking around, and maybe we actually do like a 360 and land right back where we began. We go through the motions of grief and our sin. We acknowledge that to God, but then we return right back where we started. That is not repentance that leads to fruit. And so Mercy House, if if you can relate to this, if you feel stuck in a cycle of sin, 
I first want to tell you that there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. There is no limit to what God can forgive you for, nor a limit to how often God can forgive you. That is the gospel. But at the same time, the gospel is that if you are a Christian, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer a slave to your sin. That sin has no power over you. Christians are messy But Christians do not make their home in the mess. And sometimes we just need to be told this. As a younger Christian, I needed to just be told this. Dude, you don't need to live in your sin anymore. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of this. And I include myself in that as well. And so I exhort you, brother or sister, do not be complacent in your sin. Don't justify or explain it away like the Pharisees and the religious leaders did? Yes, life is messy and hard. Temptation and to sin can be seemingly incessant and strong, but God's people acknowledge their sin. They repent. They, they don't just turn away from the sin, but they turn to God, and then they walk in obedience to God. That's what's happening right here in this passage for the people who came out into the wilderness to respond to John's message. Those are the three things that we see here. Confession, repentance, and baptism. Where confession is the acknowledgement of sin and repentance is the turning toward God and baptism represented a step of faithful obedience to God. The water in the Jordan River didn't do anything to them. So it's not like to be truly baptized, we got to go over to the Middle East and get baptized in those waters. The, the, the point of John's baptism was not the, the water itself, but what that whole process was a symbol of. It was an outward expression of an inward reality. John's baptism was a practical sign and symbol of their confession and their repentance to God. It was that step of obedience that put external action to what was already happening internally. It was a whole body experience, fully immersed under that water to show that there was not a single cell of their body that wasn't turning to God. And this wasn't just something that was specific to John. In the book of Acts, when Peter preaches his first sermon to one of the first gatherings of the church, it's, the sermon itself is also very identical to John's message, by the way. We see Peter reinforcing kind of this triad of Christian faith and practice. This is in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So right there, you see the conviction and the awareness of sin. But they didn't stay there. They didn't wallow in it. They didn't get comfortable in it. It's actually the opposite. They were compelled to action. They said, brothers, what do we do? What do we do? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, this is the front door into the faith. Confession, repentance to God, and baptism as an expression of your faith in Jesus. 
If that's something, you're like, I, I want to take that. I mean, I'm interested. At least I want to talk about this. You can fill that out on the little form. Drop it in the basket as it comes around. You can come talk to me or any other staff or elders in the back right after the sermon. We'd love to talk with you about what that would look like for you. If you are a Christian, John's message is not only for those who don't know God. It was actually aimed at people who did know God. And this models how we maintain our straight and level highway for God in our hearts by regularly confessing our sin, repenting to God, and taking steps to walk out that faith through obedience to God. So we've already taken some time to acknowledge and confess our sin this morning. We're repenting to God by turning our attention to him in his word here. And we're about to sing worship songs to worship him. But as we go out of here, a question for all of us is this. What steps of obedience is God directing me to take? What outward expression can manifest the inward work of God in our lives this morning? It might mean, I'll give you a few ideas, destroying or getting rid of pathways of sin in our lives. It might mean reaching out to somebody or writing somebody a letter. It might mean apologizing to someone. It might mean encouraging someone. It might mean reaching out and asking for prayer. It might mean putting your tithe to God in the basket. It might mean signing up for the next Mercy House workday. It might mean coming to midweek on Wednesday. It might mean getting baptized. I'm not sure what it looks like for you. If you're not sure, I would encourage you to take some time to pray about this and to think about it. It might be as simple as coming back to church next Sunday. It's a very baseline command that God gives his people to come and to hear God's word and to worship him with other believers. That's something that we're called and commanded to do. That's a great baseline of obedience for everybody to participate in. Let's read these last verses for the day and finish our time together. Verse 13, when Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized. Sorry, let me start over. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It is incredible to me that Jesus' first appearance in his public ministry was to go out into the wilderness to experience the same baptism that everyone else did. Think about that for a minute. God, who is the king that we are creating and maintaining this highway for, submits himself to the same act of obedience as everyone else. He gets into that dirty bathwater with us. Jesus had no sin to confess. He did not need to repent of anything. Yet, he still demonstrated with a whole body, whole life experience of what it meant to fully devote yourself to God. 
And as Jesus comes out of the water, we get one of the clearest glimpses in the Bible of our triune God. You've got the Spirit of God resting on the Son of God with the Father speaking audibly for everyone to hear. And this type of direct speaking from God in heaven to people in the world is only seen one other time, and that's in Jesus' transfiguration later on in chapter 17, verse 5. And I want to show you both of these because in both instances, what we see is the consistent heart of the Father for his Son. So here you see, and behold, this is verse 17, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 17, verse 5, he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then God adds a tack on there. Listen to him. Listen to him. It appears that the most important thing the Father has to say about Jesus, the most crucial thing, the one thing that he wants us to know about Jesus is how much he values his son and how much we have in him. He says, this is my beloved son. Other translations say, this is my priceless son. Frederick Dale Bruner, this is a different guy from before, says here, God is saying in so many words, in this man is everything I want to say, reveal, and do, and everything I want people to hear, see, and believe. If you want to know anything about me, if you want to hear anything from me, if you want to please me, get together with him. And with that, the stage is set. The spotlight is totally on Jesus. The king has arrived as promised, and he's about to accomplish the work that has been promised in that initial prophecy in Isaiah 40, which John is preaching at the opening of this chapter. Let me read it for you in its entirety. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 through 11. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places to plain, a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with them, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That's our God. That is the king that we are preparing the way for, and he has come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is consistent through and through, even when we see things that are culturally strange, religiously peculiar. God, thank you that your purposes remain consistent 
and steady, Lord. Thank you that you cannot be thwarted. Thank you that in you, you provide a way for us to be ultimately cleansed, God. Not just of dirt and rubble, God, but of sin and brokenness deep inside of us, Lord. Lord, help us to continue carrying on as Christians this triad of Christian orthopraxy, God, which is to continue to confess our sin, to continue to repent to you, Lord, and to continue to walk in obedience to you, Lord. I pray, God, that this triad of Christian practice would sanctify and mature and grow this body of believers here at Mercy House, Lord. Pray for those who are just visiting. I pray that this would be something that they carry on as they leave here as well, Father. I pray that you'd be glorified in this, God. I pray that our, uh, our hope would not be in the fruit of our repentance um, or in the consistency of our obedience, Lord, but that is ultimately in you and the work that you've done to even make this Christian triad of orthopraxy even possible, God. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. Help us now to walk in light of it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.